Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Daniel Garner. Daniel Garner is a good friend of mine and uh, someone who has done a lot of different things. He's been a high school literature teacher. He decided to go back for an MBA and a JD. He spent 10 years in private practice. He most recently finished a stint as the general counsel for the Department of Revenue for the state of North Carolina. He's also the father of 11 children and one of the most well-read individuals I have the privilege of knowing. Uh, today, Daniel and I are going to be discussing Hannah Arendt's uh, excellent book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Uh, Hannah Arendt was Jewish. She uh, came out of Nazi Germany, and um, after World War II, she was trying to figure out how did Germany arrive at the point that it was and under the Nazis. Uh, she wrote two books that I'm familiar with, at least. Uh, there is Eichmann in Jerusalem. And there is to the topic of our discussion today, the origins of totalitarianism. She was a graduate student of Heidegger. She brings together both studies of history and philosophy and really a piercing intellect to try to answer the really burning questions of her day of how on earth did World War II happen. She published Origins of Totalitarianism in 1951. And today we're going to talk about it. Daniel, welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So glad we can record this conversation. Well, Daniel, tell us about The Origins, origins of Totalitarianism. I think it's one of those books that a lot of people have heard of. I, I suspect many of our listeners may have it on their shelves, but I don't think very many people have read cover to cover. What I, should we know about this book? It, I, I'm like probably like many people who run across... Uh, book that's supposed to be important and so we get the book and it sits accusingly on our shelves until we drag <laughs> ourselves around and pulling the book down and reading it and that's kind of the way it was with me with this book i had it for a number of years and finally uh now that i'm in retirement i, I thought okay it's time to read this and i i had read uh eichmann in jerusalem probably five or six years ago uh and and enjoyed following Hannah Arendt's thinking and, and her analysis, that was something of a controversial book. But uh, So I thought, okay, I, I would really like to know what her thoughts were about the origins of totalitarianism. So that's why I pulled it down to read it. The, the book, um, divide, she's divided into three parts. The first part has to do with anti-Semitism. The second part has to do with imperialism. And then the third part has to do with totalitarianism. And the version that I read had a very excellent introduction by Professor Samantha Power from Harvard University. And uh, Samantha Power, Professor Power, suggests that the book is really mistitled. It, it's not a sequencing kind of history book. A happened and that caused B, and then the result of that was C. It wasn't that kind of chain of causation at all. It was more like uh, Professor Power suggested that the book should have been called The Originality of Totalitarianism because it was such a break with everything that had gone before in Western culture and West, the flow of Western history. Uh, and so it, it, really, it really was... Uh, the totalitarian state really has been a break with what has gone on before. And Hannah Arendt, at one part in the book, uh, draws some distinctions between authoritarian governments, what I would call merely authoritarian governments, and totalitarian regimes. She says it's not like a dictatorship or a tyranny. It's much more serious and pervasive and destructive of human beings than that. Um, so I was, I was really uh, provoked by this book and uh, found that uh, her thinking was was easy enough to follow. You could, you know it's it's sometimes difficult, but very 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 rewarding. I mean I learned a ton about European history and how broad anti-Semitism was in all the Western European nations how uh, blameworthy the West was for its behavior during the, you know, late, uh, well, during the 18th century and then the 19th century with, late 19th century with the imperialistic race for Africa. Um, and, and just how those things set us up for the totalitarian regimes that came to pass in 
Nazi Germany and then Bolshevik Russia. That is that sounds really interesting. I wonder if we can uh, kind of drill down into some specifics there. Um, does she offer a specific definition of totalitarianism? No, she never does. She never gets around to really? defining. Okay, this is what it is. <laughs> but 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 you, she sketches out some characteristic features. Okay, and some sort of necessary conditions and the things that you that characterize a totalitarian regime. Um, yeah, you know, it's not like, well, first let me define my terms and then I'll talk about how we saw this come to play in the 20th century. It's more like, no, this is what the Nazis did. This is what the Bolsheviks did. This is what uh, Stalin did. This is what Khrushchev did. Um, she's thicker and, and more knowledgeable since she was from Germany uh, on on what the Nazis did than she is on what the, what the communists in Russia have done. But still, you could read both of them with real profit. The thing that one of the things that struck me was how uh, fresh this book is, and how um, how um, immediate some of her statements and some of her analysis is. Give us some examples of that. What do you, what, well, where, where does she kind of speak into our moment? I mean, there's this, there's yeah. one there's one quote. It's it's the um, it's the uh, penultimate quote in the, in the, or the last sentence in the next to the last chapter in her book. Um, and if I can, I'm trying to remember where I, where I wrote that down. Um, but it's just a, it's just a, 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 to me it was a stunning quote. Here it is. She writes, totalitarian solutions may well survive the fall of totalitarian regimes in the form of strong temptations which will come up whenever it seems impossible to alleviate political, social, or economic misery in a manner worthy of man. Totalitarian solutions may well survive the fall of totalitarian regimes in the form of strong temptations which will come up whenever it seems impossible to alleviate political, social, or economic misery in a manner worthy of man. We've got vaccine mandates. We are on the verge of requiring all of the staff at Wake Memorial Hospital to be vaccinated in order to work there. All of the military to be vaccinated in order to be in the military. This is a totalitarian solution. So in that sense, the totalitarian, like what, ex, expand on what she means. Tell us, what does she mean by that idea that there, there are some solutions that are either are or are not worthy of man? Yeah. What, what, well, what's the is, idea she's, she's teaching? Well, she, her PhD dissertation was on Augustine's concept of love. So here you have this, uh, this, this Jewish woman from Germany she sees the Reichstag burning in 1933. She was born in 1906, so that makes her, what, 20, late 20s, when she sees the Reichstag burning in, in 1933. And from then on, she says, I felt responsible. And to me, when she says that, it's like, this is like Solzhenitsyn being, having this burning desire to capture the experiences of all the people that he knew in the gulag, and then to get out and write about it in order to honor their memory and to tell their stories. And so you, she, you get this sense of her response, not that she struck the matches that burned the Reichstag, it's not that kind of responsibility, but she felt this burning responsibility to tell the story of what has happened, what overcame her home nation that left her uh, a countryless person. You know, she fled, uh, she, she and her husband fled the Nazis. She was detained in 1940 and sent to an internment camp. And then she fled the Nazis uh, uh, over to uh, uh, Spain and then into Portugal. And she and her husband came ashore in New York in early in May of 1941, speaking very little English, either one of them. Oh my goodness, what what an experience that must have been. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, she was in the camp. She was in Paris for a while as a homeless person. Was in a camp in in France, an intern, uh, you know, a homeless person. There were just 
millions of displaced persons that became countryless persons, which is a big theme in her book about how dangerous that is to, to deracinate, to cut the roots off of people from their country land. And these people become, in, in, in her words, superfluous, and they are very easy to eradicate once they are cut off from their roots and once they become unimportant people or superfluous people in the minds of the governing authorities. And so, you know, you get this passion and then, then you begin to realize, well, she feels this way because she knows what it's like. She knows what it's like to be in a camp where your humanity is just pounded out of you. And, and this, this is not an emotional book. She's very cool and analytical. But then when you begin to realize, oh, this woman writes of her own knowledge, and she's giving us an analysis that we really need to pay attention to, not just in human sympathy with her own condition and her own experience, but as, but as a warning to us about how you can drift into that. So in, in that sense, I, th I think the book is it's moralistic. I mean, I, I don't know how you could read it without coming away like, this is right and this is wrong. I mean, totalitarian is evil. You cannot coexist with totalitarian regimes. You cannot. I have a working definition in my mind of a totalitarian state being one that is taking all of the apparatus of a modern state and is using that to control people's actions, to limit freedom in specific ways. And if I pair that with the quotation you just read, that really that the power of that state is being used for almost anti-human anti ends. That's the, very much her thesis. Okay. That's very much her thesis, that what totalitarian leaders do is they rely upon terror, they rely upon the unthinkable nature of their atrocities. You know, Stalin, when it's Stalin who said one man's death is a tragedy, a million men's death is a statistic, or something along those lines. Mind. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but that's, that's the mindset. Oh, and and they, they, they do not... Hitler was not at all squeamish about uh, crimes and atrocities and was proud of them. Because that, along with the terror of the Black Coat SS, was enough to scare people into submission. So the idea is, yes, you want to, you grind these human beings, you, you grind them down through the camps so there, there is no, as she says, no spontaneity, no opportunity for spontaneity, no idea of spontaneity. So we in the West sometimes look and we think, well, you know, the Hungarians rose up. The Czechoslovakians rose up. Uh, even now, today, we, we have this hope that sooner or later, the Afghanis will rise up and will cast off the Taliban. We have this hope the Iranians will rise up and throw off the, the mullahs that are subjugating them. But when you are in a totalitarian situation, all of that is beaten out of you. It's just, it's just driven out of you. You have no cap capability of being spontaneous and having that kind of independence of thinking. I think it's important that you mention Afghanistan as we're recording this the week that uh, the United States has just pulled out of Afghanistan, right. Kabul has fallen, the images of right. uh, Afghani people clinging to an American aircraft and falling to their death have been everywhere this week. Right. But the I, mean, I think so much of that so much of the past 20 years that the United States has been in Afghanistan has been hoping that, and, and I, you've, you've been around, you've been alive much longer than I have, but I've, I remember for at least the last 15 years that I've been paying attention, hearing first George W. Bush, then Barack Obama, a little bit of Trump. I imagine Biden would have said this if he could have, uh, sort of the idea that what we're doing is inspiring the Afghanis to right. govern themselves. Right. But, but I think so much of our flaws in that mission have ignored the preconditions for that sort of rising up and that sort of self-governance. Right. That the American experiment depended on so many prior centuries of common law, of a common culture, of a common understanding of, the way, of a way of life right. that then was conducive to self-government, that allowed a self-governing people to work in from beginning from really 1776 or 1789 onward, but that's simply not there. Yeah, right. We, we had, 
Yeah, we. That's a different topic. I mean, whether is. whether we should have gone in or not, and how long we should have stayed, what we should have done, whether whether we should use U.S. military for nation building and all those those kinds of things. What what one of the things that Hannah Arendt talks about in this book is how uh, the state, as a political organism, as an as an entity, as a as a body politic. How that body, that corporate uh, uh, entity, uh, gets destroyed, and there's a shell of it left, but the nation swallows up the state. The people group swallows up the state. And the leader of that totalitarian regime uses the fact that there is a people group to subjugate his own people and grind them into submission. The most important thing in a totalitarian regime is the police, the secret police. That's the most important feature in both Nazi Germany and in, in the Russian experience was, was the secret police. And then there, then there are terror that is applied to keep people in subjugation. You're terrified that your neighbor is going to squeal on you, and so you don't do anything. The other thing that, that struck me is... Uh, there is such an overwhelming urge to belong that when you cut people's roots out from under them and you isolate them one from, from another, what you have left, and this is exploited by the totalitarian leaders, what you have left is a desire to belong to the party. And there's this overweening desire to belong to such an extent that these people will testify against themselves. They will confess to things that they did not do because they think that by so doing they will ingratiate themselves and will continue to belong to the party even though they're being marched off to their deaths. This was stunning to me. But, but I wondered, well, how in, the world, how in the world could a person get to that point? How could they so lose who they are that they would do anything in order to belong? And all you have to do is read Witness. By Whitaker Chambers. I mean, that's in our own country. Here's a man who, who came up with a desperately broken background, but he was so wanting to belong that he would have done anything in order to belong to the party, and did. I mean, he was a tool of Moscow, mm -hmm. sending secrets back to Moscow directly. And, and then when he finally had his uh, conversion, if you will, uh, and, and chose to be on what he thought was the losing side. I mean, that was, a, that was a hugely courageous act because he thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to die. But he still thought it was the right thing to do. And he knew, he got some idea that the, that the lie on which the totalitarian regime depends was in fact a lie. And he, he got behind this whole curtain and he realized, okay, it's all a fabric of lies. Part of what seems really interesting to me is that if I'm piecing this together correctly, then part of what Arendt is describing is a process by which an existing country uh, goes through and identifies an enemy, and then uh, you used a phrase earlier, deracinate, where they kind of isolate and vilify and demonize this one group and rip them out of their context. At the same time, if the nation is swallowing the state, the existent legitimate state authority is sort of subsumed into this rabid nationalism that then fills it and kind of destroys the original natural community that the people of that state have. That's exactly right. And, and then, it's, not, it's, it's not that the Hitler didn't care about the nation. He cared about the master race. This was a stunning revelation to me. You know, I had sort of had this notion that, yeah, the Germans took a wrong turn. They followed a bad leader. They, 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 they gave vent to their anti-Semitism, and they, their big goal was to kill the, kill the Jews. Well, the, the other... Hitler's the big other, goal was to create a master race. He thought that... He didn't think that the Germans were the master race. He was fully prepared to kill Germans in order to bring to birth the master race. And that's why he went around trying to identify who was Aryan, measuring head shapes, getting eye color. He thought that there were Aryans in the Nordic countries. And his idea was 
to make these people, these, these Aryans, into a master race that would last a thousand years, and that he was trying to hurry the next step in evolution to bring to pass a new humanity that was worthy of world conquest. But his notion was world conquest for the sake of this master race. And so even his military advisors were saying, hey, you're killing all of our workers in Poland. This is not good for our military strategy. He didn't care. He cared more about killing Jews. And, and, and Hannah Arendt makes this observation that he was more interested in eliminating Jews and Ukrainians and Poles and all of the under, under what is it, under niche, all of the lower class, all of the lower class human beings in order to rid the earth of those people so that the Aryans could breed, you know, very rapidly and bring about a master race. It, it was just diabolical what he was willing to do in order to do that. I find that so interesting because it's so different than I think the typical way that, at least certainly the typical way I was taught World War II and kind of Germany's movement into Nazi propaganda. I think the, I think the typical narrative is sort of a, one of economic frustration and the uh, economic fault. This is sort of the result of people were so frustrated at their inability to get ahead because of these war reparations that were assessed at the end of World War One that they were susceptible to this bad ideology, but you're describing, or say Arendt is describing, something much deeper. Oh, yeah. I think, as Hitler certainly tapped into a love of Germany from the German people, but if what you're describing is correct, then he does, he's not actually interested in the Germany that has always been there and wanting to be continuous with it. He's wanting to bring about a new Germany that's something that has really never existed before and is much more mythic than historic. Right, right. So that, exactly right. Which this was her. I mean, she was there. This was her take on it. This was her view of how the Nazis wanted to do what they wanted to do. She says, "This is on page five thirty-three of the book." The Nazis did not think that the Germans were a master race to whom the world belonged, but that they should be led by a master race, as should all other nations, and that this race was only on the point of being born. Not the Germans were the dawn of the master race, but the SS. Hitler did not give up hope. Even at the end of the war, he did not give up hope until the SS turned on him. And then he thought, okay, it's all over. But up until then, he still had hope that the SS would spawn this master race. The Germanic world empire, as Himmler said, or the Aryan world empire, as Hitler would have put it, was in any event still centuries off. This guy had given himself to an ideological lie that this was the master race and that he was going to usher it in. He was going to bring in to pass this master race to, to accelerate the next stage in man's evolution. That was his notion. Now, it wasn't this... just about ruthlessness or tyranny or gimme, gimme, gimme. It was, those were, it was non-utilitarian. You know, his decisions were non-utilitarian. And of course, this drove, this, this drove the German, you know, military guys who were smart and were capable, just drove them up a wall. Because, you know, he was using, he was using trains that should have been used for troop transports and moving men and materiel for the war effort. He was using them to kill Jews. I mean, it, 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 that, was the, that was one of the stunning things to me, that totalitarians are so given to the ideological lie that they have created and that they have fabricated that they, they don't care about utilitarian things. And this is why in the West, we just find these things unthinkable. And so the totalitarians have their way with us because we cannot bring ourselves to imagine the type of atrocities that they are willing to perpetrate against their own people. We just think, no, this couldn't possibly be. When, Hitler, when, uh, when Hannah Arendt and her husband were in New York, they, in, in May of 41 now, they started getting wind of what Hitler was doing with the death camps fairly early on. Even they couldn't bring themselves to believe it until like mid-1943, that the death camps were really what was going on. And then they were, they were faced with irrefutable evidence and they you know, realized, okay, this is what it's really about. I was stunned. I, I just was stunned. And when we stop and think about, okay, Nazi Germany 
Adolf Hitler, this was not just a one of a kind. This was not just a, a Western aberration. The Soviets have done the same thing. And there are other totalitarian regimes that are doing the same thing. What the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs in China is a page right out of Hitler. I was thinking of the same thing. I was thinking of the Uyghurs as you were describing that because I mean, certainly uh, there was a, various newspapers have given a couple accounts. I read one account from a uh, a man who was he was not himself a Uyghur, but he was caught. Uh, I want to say he was um, was Mongolian, but he was caught up in a sweep of Uyghurs, and he spent six months in one of their camps before he escaped. And he describes very similarly to what you were describing in terms of like a systematic attempt to break down any opposition to the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese government. And yes. there have been other accounts of... It is a dehumanizing process. Yeah. And this is why in the West, when, you know, the Russians from one side, the Russians tankers busted in through Auschwitz, and we, coming from the other side, began to liberate these death camps, people were just stunned. They were incapable of making any kind of decision. Some of those people, of course, you know, never attained any kind of mental health at all. I mean, Viktor Frankl, you know, you read some of his writings and you realize how some of these people were just not able to to reattain their humanity. And so there's this, this kind of, she says camps are essential. This kind of herding people together, isolating them, uh, atomizing human beings, atomizing, breaking them apart one from the other, and subjugating them and breaking them down so that no, she says, no spontaneity is left, no possibility of spontaneity. Which is another way of breaking down the natural human communities that already exist. Exactly. I mean, this, this reminds me, years ago I taught uh, Eli Wiesel's novella, Night, Yes. And, he goes through and just painstakingly, incredibly well written, but oh my goodness, it's just so sorrowful. Yes. Painstaking detail about the uh, breaking apart of families, the intentional separation of men and women in different areas, and then the way that food supply would be kept extremely limited. And he, here's one scene that stuck in my mind seven years later since I taught it, where he describes. Uh, uh, Wiesel's, I forget if he's the primary character or, character or if he has a protagonist in the novel, but there's the protagonist and his father are both in there, in the in this train car, and there is and the guards throw in one loaf of bread for a train car of 20 to 30 men who've not eaten in days. And Wiesel just describes the utter animality yes. and, and the fact that everyone is everyone's ready to kill their neighbor to get this scrap of bread. And that he describes he and his father for a moment and almost forget that they are father and son. They're right. just he's just an opponent for the right. bread, and this complete breakdown of humanity. I, mean, I think on the one hand we hear this today and think, how could that possibly exist today? But North Korea still exists under this kind of totalitarian regime, right. and Cuba still exists under this right. kind of totalitarian regime. Where it ruled by such an intense ideology that the ability to perceive and live in accordance with truth and the actual natural patterns of human life are almost impossible unless you get out from under it and realize what life under that ideology was like. Right, right. And so, you know, the the initial quote that we gave about the the total how how totalitarian methods or totalitarian solutions or proclivities can survive a totalitarian regime. I mean, yeah, that's not, that's not impossible. That's not impossible. What Hitler did to the Jews was, of course, make them a special class and then begin to reduce the rights of the special class and then make them an unacceptable special class and reward those who denigrated or who attacked this special class. This was long before he started doing the, the final solution thing. But the final solution was in view right from the very beginning. I mean he had that in mind. We're gonna rid we're gonna rid Europe of the Jews. And yeah. that's just one of the groups that he was gonna rid Europe of in, in hopes of spawning this new master race. 
Now, I wonder if you could take us back to, you mentioned earlier that the, the Arendt begins her book with a focus on anti-Semitism. Right. And now that's, that too is something I've found fascinating over the years. I think we, I think often in, particularly in grade school, we do emphasize, hopefully, that the Holocaust happened and that uh, anti-Semitism was a big part of, of that. But I don't know that we focus very much on the prevalence of that across 18th and 19th century Europe. And so, yeah. could you walk us through some of what Arendt yeah, does there? Like, where does she see that? Where, where, I mean, Hitler's not making that happen in his time. He's drawing on an existent right. tradition and existent patterns of thought and mockery in a very real right. way. Right. Yeah, I I was a little surprised when I looked at the table of contents and, and thought, well, okay, yeah, Nazis were certainly anti-Semitic, but is this one of the origins of it? Uh, and, and, it's, and it really, again, she does not, she doesn't seek to, construct some sort of predictive chain of causation that you know she doesn't do that she doesn't say she doesn't try as she says you can't derive the unprecedented from precedence so <laughs> you know you she doesn't she doesn't try to do that because some historians when they look at an event and then they go back and look behind it to see what led to it you get this air of of inevitability and she would not I don't think she would go as far as to say that. But certainly, uh, anti-Semitism is a way of singling out a particular group and then uh, uh, treating that group differently from anyone else. Um, uh, and yeah, one of the things that surprised me about her discussion of anti-Semitism uh, was how widespread it was all across Western Europe. There's an anti-Semitic strain in English history. There's an anti-Semitic strain in all of, all of the Western European countries. And she focuses in at great length, and this is something that I really enjoyed because I knew almost nothing about it before I read this <laughs> section of her book, was the Dreyfus Affair in France. And what a turning point, uh, what, what, a re, what a real uh, crossroads that was not just for the nation of France, but for Europe generally. I don't know what the Dreyfus okay, well, is. Okay, Dreyfus was a, was a, uh, he was a uh, Jew, but he was in the military. Um, and she goes to considerable discussion in this section of the book about how Jews interacted and sought to belong. And sometimes they were accepted, very often they were not. So they vacillated between being a parvenu, someone who's, who's accepted for the, the things that they can bring, but not really fully socially accepted, uh, and a pariah, an outcast, someone who is dismissed and disdained. And she talks about how that vacillation or that, that, uh, those sort of poles were experienced by the Jewish people at various levels of Jewish society and in various countries. So it, it, it's really a, you know, that, that in itself is worth the read. It's just, even if you just, just didn't get past the first section. But getting back to Dreyfus, okay, so you have this, this Jewish guy on the French general staff in the military. Uh, the military in France at the time was overwhelmingly Catholic. And there's ambition. And the police, the, the internal intelligence community, was controlled by the military in France at the time. So because of this ambition and because of the latent anti-Semitism, I guess, of some people, one of Dreyfus' fellow officers accused him falsely of spying, spying for Germany. Okay, and, and turned up documents that were supposedly in his handwriting where he was giving over secrets to the Germans. Okay. Tried and convicted, and then people start, th and sentenced to Devil's Island, okay? You know, just, you, you don't come back from there, okay? Um, so off he goes to Devil's Island, and then people start looking at this thinking, wait a second, not sure this was right. Uh, that he appealed, of course, and they started looking at it again, and they realized, some people realized, no, 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 this guy was railroaded. He was set up 
Uh, and then the, it, the uh, falsity of the accusation came out. But that wasn't enough to turn the tide because then, by then, people had already become convinced that this little weasel Jew really did sell out our nation. And so it became a moment of truth for France as to whether are we a nation of laws or not? Are we going to give this guy a fair trial or not? Well, he's a Jew. Well, it doesn't matter, does it? And so there was a big division in France, French society and in the military as to what we should do with this case. And other European nations were watching. England was watching. Other, other nations were watching to see how France is going to deal with this. And they never dealt with it properly. So they brought him back, but they didn't vindicate him. They didn't give him another trial. And, the, and it just tore France apart. And it began a civil conflict uh, within French society as to what should be done with Dreyfus. What should be done with Dreyfus. And there were groups that, that supported him and that groups were antagonistic against him. Okay. So it's really, it, I don't know, but I imagine it may have felt in France somewhat like the summer after George Floyd was killed felt here. Hmm. You know, you have this div- sort of division of this event mm-hmm. and, and it's like, it's just a polarizing event. People sure. aren't thinking anymore. They're really not relying upon the legal structures that we have had confidence in for, for years and years and years. Instead, they are taken to the streets. And there were riots in Paris, kill the Jews, as a result of this in the 1890s. So to think, to think oh no, uh, the Germans just kind of stepped off the track and gave vent to their anti-Semitism, and that's what explains Nazi Germany. No, 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 no. There was anti-Semitism that was rife throughout Europe. And that, that to me, was shocking. So her whole section about, okay. okay, this sets this up. She says that the Dreyfus Affair was a dress rehearsal for the final solution. Oh, interesting. What a fascinating thing to be able to look back at that. After yeah. knowing this is where Nazi Germany is going to take this. But then look at like just even because that would only have been fifty years oh, earlier. Yeah. So two generations earlier, right? What would and and to even see that? I mean, because one of the the difficulties in that kind of division is that you do have half the population is on this side, right? Which means there's that's a favorable opinion for a lot of people to be able to just throw the book at this guy, even if it's unjust, right? Right. Uh, so that yeah. so you can see how okay if there's that kind of. If there's that kind of uh, seedbed or potting soil across Europe, you can see how it does us no good to pull up our garments of self-righteousness and say the Germans were just weird and they just they just screwed up. And that's there's something in the German mindset that made them gave them the proclivity to do that. No, 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 no. It's not that way at all. It's more like this kind of this kind of willingness to throw a class of people under the under the bus was a lot more widespread than just in Germany. I was shocked by that. Well, that is so. This is this book obviously is in no way a uh, a, a in praise of the West, but it certainly sounds like it's uh, a, a helpful diagnostic for something. Oh yeah, that, I mean, that, she obviously came here. Yeah, she published this book in in the United States the same year she became an American citizen. 1951, and then it was published in German in 1955. So, so yeah, I mean, she, she was a, she was a, you know, a, a thinker in the West mm-hmm. who who loved the West, who valued Western civilization, and part of the reason why some people look at the book and say, well, it's not very well edited. There are some things that are repeated in there. Uh, you know, she came back and wrote the last chapter differently in the second edition. So there were some things that she she didn't back off of what she had said at all, but she had more opportunity to reflect. But part of the reason for rushing it in print was because she saw what was happening in the late 40s and early 50s in post-war Europe and saw that the Soviets were pushing forward this Iron Curtain. She saw that and wanted to warn the West against it and try to awaken the West to the horrors of a totalitarian regime. You know, yes, you defeated Nazism, but that's not the only enemy out there. And you better wake up and realize how these things come to pass and take measures to stand against it. 
she seems to me to kind of fit pretty well with two other authors. Uh, I think in in 1948, Richard Weaver published his book that I think the title is much more famous than the actual book itself. The ideas have consequences. Right. Which, incidentally, Weaver hated the title. His publisher was convinced the title would sell. So, yeah. But the uh, that book opens with sort of a, a beautiful 10-page diatribe against the, the West in the sense that it... Uh, his, his big question is, how do we get to the point of dropping the atomic bomb and not recognizing the moral harm in this in this action? Yeah. And he sees the, the very, uh, even just the very question of, should we drop the atomic bomb? By the time the West has gotten to that question, we've already, we've there's something has been lost. Yes. And he wants to write a book to answer that question, like, what has been lost which seems very similar to what Arendt is trying to do. Yes. Both of which I think fit pretty neatly with, you've already mentioned uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, his Gulag yes. Archipelago, where, uh, and at least in, um, and Solzhenitsyn doesn't really see himself in the West in the same way that no, 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 Weaver no. certainly does, and Arendt is, is there. He, right. he see, he's Russian, and he's, he's outside of the typical Western circuit. Right. But he has a lot of the same kinds of questions, of just right. like, well, wait a minute, we now have the ability to organize humanity in such a way that power can be exercised upon human persons in a way that has never before been possible. Right. And what have we done with that? And we, in that case, is the Soviet Union and the Communist Party ruling the so ruling Soviet Russia. And, and that book is just gut-wrenching in terms of yeah. its uh, the opening part with the description of all these different kinds of tortures to produce psychological effects. But all three of these authors seem to me to be asking this question where they, they they want to figure out how do we get here, hopefully with some kind of ending note of like, and here's how we can not be here again. Right. Does Arendt end on sort she, of that positive no, note she, or does she do something different? No, she, she is... Uh, she, I looked for the same thing. It's like, okay, where's the light here? She dismisses as a possible hope uh, declarations of international human rights. Interesting. She dismisses as a possible, because they're unenforceable. She dismisses as a possible hope the messianic hope of okay. Christendom. And she dismisses, uh, she really doesn't come forward with a, with a, with a solution. Except to say, we have to be aware, of, I, I think she would agree with this, we have to be aware of these impulses, we have to be aware of people who are willing to do these things and open our eyes to these things and think about these things and then, uh, if need be, take up arms against them. We have to have the courage to do that. And you know, one of the things that I thought about as I was searching kind of at the end for, okay, so what then? Where, how should we then live? Um, uh, one of the things that, that occurred to me is, it, and this, this, is kinda, this is the vein that Hannah Arendt would, lead, would, I think, encourage the people in the West to read her book and think along these lines. How do you think about an atrocity? You know, how you think about a thing really matters. That seems self-evident, kind of like ideas have consequences is self-evident. But how you think about a thing really, really matters. It determines so much about what, what, you, what course of action you take, but it also, it, also it, it colors you. What analogies do you use to think about a thing? And atrocities are very hard for us to think about. Evil is very difficult to think about. It's unpleasant to think about. We don't like to hear stories about atrocities. But we have to think about these things, she would say. I think she would say, you have to confront the atrocity and look behind it and look beyond it and then, and then take action against it. You cannot just merely react emotionally and you cannot... You cannot turn your eyes aside and not look because, as she said, watching the burning of the Reichstag, I felt responsible. I felt responsible to take some, to take some action or to be some kind of person. And, and Solzhenitsyn picks up on the same notion. 
I mean, the evening before he was exiled from Russia in 1974, he promulgated to his, his fellow dissident professors an essay, uh, Live Not By Lies. And he said, look, we can't stop the tanks. We can't get up there and, and overthrow the government. But we can decline to live by lies. We can choose to speak the truth. We can choose not to endorse the lie. And when you read that essay, that's, uh, that would be a challenging essay even for me as an American to live out the truth of that essay. And so I read that essay very, very seriously and I think about it and realize, okay, that's what a, a Hannah Arendt or a Solzhenitsyn would ask of us in the West. Don't live by lies. Look at what you what what is actually there. See it, and 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 thank God for the goodness that you do have. Enjoy the goodness that you do have, but then have mercy on those who who have not, and do what you can to stop their suffering. That's that's uh, that's the essay. Live not by lies. And I, and I, you're right. I, I think you're right to connect Hannah Arendt and Solzhenitsyn and other similar kind of voices. I mean, I think it was a it was a major question of the end of the 20th century. I mean, every that generation lived through those atrocities, and I think there were there were certainly not all, but there were many intellectuals who were trying to do that very thing, and they wanted to squarely face that. Yes, and I, I hear in that that question or that that statement that live not by lies. I mean, that that's the very cry of Socratic philosophy across the centuries. Right. It's part of why, still to this day, the vast majority of people's experience with philosophy starts with reading Plato and hearing Socrates say, but is it really? <laughs> is that right. really what that word right. means? And and really the... So if, if maybe this, this may be vastly oversimplifying Arendt's argument, but it, it seems to me that Arendt is unwilling to... Uh, she, she doesn't really bring us to a conclusion. Right. It's but still... she does leave us with this recognition that Okay, what happened in Nazi Germany, what happens in a totalitarian regime, is not nearly as simple as I thought it was. Right. And the, now that I realize it's not that simple, that realization obligates me to live in accordance with that realization. Right. And a very... Uh, Heidegger has a, a great essay about truth, where he talks about truth as um, the thing which lays before, <laughs> in a very... Yeah convoluted Heideggerian way, but he, he talks about the idea that uh, he thinks the etymology of truth started with people bringing their, uh, their grain in and they would lay the grain before the village, and that the truth of the grain was right there before you. Once you see it there, its reality impresses itself upon you and you have to right. live that way. Right. And I think that's part of where, I mean, I think certainly Arendt and, and other kind of philosophically astute intellectuals of the 20th century, they, they don't have answers, but they refuse to let us ignore the questions that are burning and That's require right. us to face them. That's exactly right. So she, she would, uh, she would, uh, she would, I think she would still ring the alarm bell and try to awaken the West. And as I said in that quote, uh, part of living not by lies is to determine that you will not invoke a totalitarian solution. You will not allow yourself to become a part of a totalitarian solution. You will see other human beings as human beings with value and worth and significance and dignity because they're made in God's image. Okay? And you will, you will, you will bring yourself back to that point always, 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 and not allow yourself to just be swept along by the crowd uh, that's on its way to its doom. You know, instead, you'll say, no, 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 that's not, not true, not true. Uh, I mean, that's, that's how Romania fell. So many people in the streets were saying, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. Um, you know, well... Here on the Optimistic Curmudgeon, uh, I, I like to end our show with uh, usually trying to figure out where is the hope. And I think if there's a hope in Hannah Arendt, as we've been discussing, I think it's a little bit deeper than sort of a positive, happy ending that my American soul longs for a Disneyfied happy ending. Right. And that, that's not here. But there is something true and substantive in that call to live facing reality and accepting reality and all of its complications. Yeah. And to reject the simplicity 
of, of a false answer. And I think that, that too, as we're, uh, I'm pretty sure the uh, Wake County mask mandate just got strengthened or, the, or we're, <laughs> we may be back in a state of emergency. I missed this afternoon's update on our lack of law in North Carolina or whatever that is. But the, the refusal to accept an inhumane governmental answer yeah. Now that is a fascinating charge, and one that uh, I'm, I'm gonna have to think about more. That like it 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 pushes back on the idea that it it makes it makes more complex what is our duty as citizens to a a government. She talks about prop- propaganda and the use that totalitarians make of propaganda, but propaganda in the totalitarian regime is typically more concerned about deceiving the world those who are outside the system who are observing it. And indoctrination is what is going on inside the nation. So we as Americans pride ourselves on our open-mindedness and our thinking and our willingness to confront things and to ponder things and hold things at arm's length before we come to conclusions. We pride ourselves on our individual and our independent thought. But then we go along with the crowd uh, when the opportunity presents itself, rather than saying, no, wait just a second here. Why should I take an experimental vaccine? <laughs> no, they're experimental. The experiment is ongoing. And maybe there are some who should be the control group. Maybe we shouldn't all take the vaccine. Now, that's my personal view of it, but I do wonder if it's this uh, lack of discussion about the therapies that are available or the lack of discussion about, uh, I mean, if you say something on YouTube that's anti uh, this vaccine, you may be in favor of other vaccines, but have questions about this particular vaccination regime and you're squelched. There's not an open-minded discussion here. And even the doctors are coming around and saying, wait a second. We're, we're, we're experiencing these things. These are the therapies that we're trying. They don't involve the vaccination. There are problems with the vaccination. And even they are getting squelched. Why would that be so? And isn't that something that ought to concern those of us who pride ourselves on our American independent thinking? Well, uh, I think it, it pushes us back to the real question. And, and, and at this point, I, w- I would say this is at the level of a societal question for the yeah. United States right now. Uh, do we the founding fathers valued free speech enough to protect it in the in the Bill of Rights, and the question is, do we? And with free speech comes the necessary requirement of misinformation. Right. That's going to happen in a free society. There are going to be people who abuse freedom. The question becomes, do we value free speech enough to train people, equip people to weigh? Good right. versus bad information, and do we actually? I, mean, I think this is one of the uh, this is one of the classical liberal uh, principles of anthropology that, uh, on balance, people actually make the best choices for themselves when you give them the, the ability right. to make that choice. Do we think that's true? Or uh, before we kind of went on to a vaccine tangent, I was thinking a bit more. I was already thinking about big tech, but uh, in a contrast, yeah, right. I will get to in a second. But do we? Or do we basically empower big technology to police us? Right. And in doing that, which on a related but different note, I think one of the reasons I'm so excited we're talking about this book that I now want to read, because I, I'm very intrigued by this book after our conversation, uh, there's something so lasting and substantive about a printed book uh-huh. that cannot be controlled by the people who own the server farms. Right. <laughs> I mean, like... Hannah Arendt put her thoughts down, put her story down, took all of her research, put that down 70 years ago. And 70 years later, you can read it and see a lot of relevant truth that helps you better understand our present today. And it doesn't really matter if Google thinks that it's appropriate for you to read Hannah Arendt or to agree or disagree with her. They they can't put you down 50,000 rating or 50,000 links below the top links or whatever. It doesn't matter if uh, Facebook wants to put a this is disinformation stamp on your Hannah Arendt quote or something. Yeah. It doesn't matter. The ideas are there and can be interacted with. And I think if anything, it hopefully pushes us back to uh, a, a necessity for free individuals to be serious thinkers and not 
Because if we're not serious thinkers, we're really letting companies control right. what we think right. about. And that's have, serious thoughts with, expect to books. We have to be willing to talk about things, mm-hmm. to see things, to think carefully and thoroughly, and then talk about things and be corrected by others who, mm-hmm. who talk back to us. I mean, that's how you get corrected. Is you, <laughs> and I hope that I've said something wrong here that some people who, who listen to this thing will send you an email or something. If they're still listening, they should flame us and send it to all of their friends. That's what they should do if if they're irritated about you saying that the vaccine is not great or me saying that Google hates conservatives. Yeah. But to... to, Yeah, the First Amendment, it's come under question. I mean, it's actually being debated. It's, It's come under question as to whether or not we should not maintain and defend the First Amendment or whether we should... We should modify it somehow. I mean, we, we've, we've stood on the First Amendment even when people were making hateful statements. Hateful statements. We would say, no, that's defensible. That's, th- that's their right to speak those hateful things. Right. Um, you know, I think, I think it was uh, um, Scalia who said that he thought Jefferson would say the more speech the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he's probably right. So maybe we ought to have more speech instead of less and and let the hate mongers be known as hate mongers. But you won't know that if you don't allow them to out themselves and to speak their hate. So we have to defend even the even the right of people that say things that we think are are filled with hate or that are just wrong or lies in order to be able to refute it. I think... Um... Uh, Russell Moore is one of my favorite pictures of people who uh, uh, who, who did that, or do, I presume still do that to some degree, but back when he was uh, head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, I remember him writing at one point about the, the necessity of Baptists to defend a Wiccan's right to worship. And yep. he made the argument that uh, Baptists depend upon the freedom of, not really depend on, we would still worship in accordance with our, our consciences, even if it was illegal. We, we, that's, that's one of those places right. of living by truth and dying for it. But uh, we exercise our religious rights underneath a principle of religious freedom, but that requires us to go to the bat for other people's religious right. freedom. And we find that actually, uh, and then that creates the marketplace of ideas where we can, I can try and persuade a Wiccan that Mother Gaia is nonsense and she needs Jesus. That she can try and persuade me to come to her orgy, and and that's fine. She's, it's not gonna work. But that 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 mutual persuasion is a much better condition than either a non-religious world where all religion is banned or a mono-religious world where no one actually practices what they believe, right. just what will get them the least bad consequences. Right. Right. Like, I think our... The, the same analogy, I think, holds for, for speech. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, as we're wrapping up, this is, I, I love conversations that, like, range all over the place. And <laughs> yeah. we're, we're sitting in your library with so many great books about all kinds of topics. A ranging discussion uh, seems to me uh, an excellent one. Um, I hope people will read this book. I really do. I, I, I think this would be, um, I, I found it fascinating and enjoyable. It's very long, it's, you know, it's 600 pages or something, but it's, so it's a big book. But it, these three sections break out and, and, you know, you can read these things with profit, even though, as you said, this book is 70 years old. Um, I, I, I just hope people will read it and will think about some of the things that, that, that this uh this very courageous and careful thinker uh, put down for us in, in an effort to warn the West. Okay, I can take her. I can take her intention. I think she succeeded admirably uh, in her intention to warn us. If we'll uh, read it and take some heed. Uh, I think that's probably our, our best closing note. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today for an episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. This thank has been you. a delightful conversation. Thank you, Josh. Thank you very much. And listeners, thank you for uh, joining us for here on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please do share this with your friends and family. Uh, do go on to whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Leave us a five-star review. Uh, you can find all of our social media links on uh, optimisticcurmudgeon.org, or you could always drop us an email at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. And until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful. 
You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, We're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful.